Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. Hello and welcome. Thanks for your company. Australia is endowed with an embarrassment of energy resources. So why are all the headlines screaming about the threat of blackouts on the East Coast? We're also a country that prides itself in freedom. So why are religious leaders so worried? Things are not right in our nation. Much of it can be sheeted back to politicians not telling us the truth. I'll look at both of these crises later in the show. There's a whole lot going on. This week's feature interview is with Family First candidate for the Bragg by-election in Adelaide, which is coming up on July 2. Local high school history teacher Daryl McCann is the only candidate not parachuted in from outside the electorate. When will the major parties learn? But first, take a look at this. Did you catch that? We have genitals and lube, the the drag queen said as children watched on. Drag queens throwing lube into the crowds, bare breasts and male buttocks were all exposed to Los Angeles children at the weekend's Pride Month parade. Sky News Australia censored footage uh, that it put to air this week. Here's what Andrew Bolt had to say. This is also about accepting the most demeaning sexual behaviours, whippings and all that kind of stuff, a perversion really of affection. And it's about flaunting an aggressive sexuality without any moderation or any consideration or any sense of time and place, uh, dignity, no sense of propriety, or even a mutual love. I mean, this is promoting instead a really highly sexualised world. Australia's equivalent uh, parades take place at other times of the year, but many Australian governments and woke corporates also promote Global Pride Month throughout June. For instance, the streets of inner Sydney are decked with taxpayer-funded rainbow flags, but few understand the consequences of buying into this political symbol. Mainstream Australians support dignity and non-discrimination for same-sex attracted people so they can get on with their lives. And the reality is that's what most of them want to do without any fuss. But it's quite another thing for mainstream Australians and their children to be forced to celebrate Pride Month and pay for aspects of it through their taxes. After all, the 1970s rallying cry for the gay rights movement was what happens in the privacy of the bedroom is no one else's business. If only that's where the political activists left things. For all of June, Global Pride Month foisters gender fluidity and radical sexual expressionism into the rest of the population, including and especially onto children. We've seen all this in Sydney's Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade held in March each year. Like its LA counterpart, it's not a family event, even though Bill Shorten once took his kids. Victoria's taxpayer-funded Pride Centre in St Kilda is also hosting events for children this month. Since de facto, so since degendering marriage, there's been an aggressive push in schools to indoctrinate children into gender-fluid ideology, teaching them their gender was assigned at birth, not observed, and that it can be changed. This is having consequences here and abroad. The number of children and young people in the US now identifying as transgender, that is, confused about their biology, has more than doubled since 2017. 
Australia's statistics from our secretive gender clinics are hard to come by, but it is widely acknowledged that Australia has an unprecedented epidemic of gender-confused children. This comes as international and Australian medical experts urge caution before putting children on the pathway to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgery to breasts and genitals. That of course hasn't stopped politicians in Queensland, Victoria and the ACT banning children from receiving help from anyone other than a therapist who will affirm LGBTIQA plus gender fluid ideology. New South Wales and Tasmania are about to debate similar laws banning the tried and tested watch and wait protocols that successfully help children avoid experimental puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones or the gender doctor's scalpel. Pride Month seeks to amplify gender-fluid ideology and further normalise it. US Vice President Kamala Harris did her bit, posing for a photo on social media with a scantily clad person who appeared to be a man presenting as a woman. Another senior US politician, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, celebrated Pride Month by making an appearance on the RuPaul's Drag Race television program. Please give a warm Drag Race welcome to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Welcome back. My honor to be here to say to all of you how proud we all are of you. Thank you for the joy and beauty you bring to the world. Your freedom of expression of yourselves in drag is what America is all about. I say that all the time to my friends in drag. Now Pelosi finished by saying, God bless America. The rest of us say, God help America. Meanwhile, still in the land of the free, the New York Post reports this week that $200,000 of taxpayer money is being spent sending drag queens into schools to indoctrinate children into gender fluid ideology, often without parents' knowledge. Pride Month is global and it is here. Even woke corporates like ANZ are getting into the swing of things, folding uh, the Marxist Black Lives Matter movement imagery and LGBTIQA plus flags into corporate logos. Now a legitimate battle for equality before the law has been won, and activists, but the activists didn't stop there. Under the guise of tolerance, they demand full compliance with and celebration of everything LGBTIQA plus. Politicians kowtow, none question the agenda, none speak out. So this June, when you see a rainbow flag hanging from a public lamppost in the Sydney CBD, or lighting up the taxpayer-funded Pride Centre at St Kilda, it is telling you that your child's gender is fluid and you were a bigot to assign his or her gender based on what the midwife said at birth. Happy Pride Month, Mainstream Australia. Perhaps it's time to get involved in politics because politics sure is getting involved in your kids' lives. As families and small businesses struggle with electricity bills that have doubled in the past decade, they now face the prospect of blackouts and gas shortages along with further price hikes. In a country with energy, wealth for toil, only a political debate devoid of reality could have brought us to this point. We were told renewables would save us as aging coal-fired power stations were closed or blown up, as was the case in South Australia. But this was a mirage. Many Family First supporters, including me, got behind Cory Bernardi's now defunct Australian Conservatives at the 2019 election. 
Back then, we warned of and predicted what we are seeing now. There is no joy in being on the right side of history when people are suffering and when more pain is to come. Some of the uh, other all too rare consistent voices in this debate have cogently outlined uh, why it is simply impossible physically and economically to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. One can only hope the people who voted for the modern Liberals, Labor, Teals or the Greens will read Graham Lloyd, Chris Ullman and Adam Crichton for a dose of reality. Here's a snapshot. This is what Lloyd uh, in The Australian had to say. Too many people with too little understanding have turned a problem of physics and engineering into one of politics and economics. The breakdown in electricity supply is as serious as it has been predictable. Engineers know that grinding the coal sector into the ground won't make renewables produce electricity when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining." End quote. Channel 9's Chris Hulman in the nine newspapers commented on Germany's transition. Here's what he said. It has spent more than 500 billion euros transitioning its electricity system, boosting wind and solar to more than 45% of generation since 2000. But it had to keep 89% of its fossil-fired capacity to deal with the problems caused by calm, dark days. It now boasts Europe's most expensive retail power and is strategically exposed because the country can't function without imported gas. Hulman quotes Professor Vaclav Smil, author of How the World Really Works. We have no readily deployed commercial-scale alternatives for energising the production of the four pillars. Ammonia, food producing fertilizer, cement, plastics, and steel. These are the four pillars of modern civilization solely by electricity. Adam Crichton in The Australian this week quotes Mark Mills, an energy analyst at the Manhattan Institute. The world has collectively deployed more than $2 trillion for alternative energy over the past decade. And the share of the world's energy coming from hydrocarbons has declined by about two percentage points from 86% to 84%. Yet Frank Calibria, the head of Australia's biggest energy company, Origin Energy, gave a speech to the Australian Energy Week conference last week, where he said a staggering 120 trillion more would have to be spent by 2050 to reach net zero. He said battery storage would have to grow by a factor of 170 as hydrocarbon, uh, commercially, as, sorry, as hydrogen and storage are yet to materialise as commercial. Uh, propositions. Yet Labor's new energy minister, Chris Bowen, his response was that we should get more of the same. He said, I, I support storage and renewables being a particular focus of capacity mechanism going forward, end quote. Sadly, these technologies don't work. Maybe they will in the future. Who knows? Now, thankfully, Labor's Resources Minister Madeleine King knows there is only one way out of this crisis, and that is the immediate upscaling of firm electricity produced by coal, a substance routinely demonised by the Labor teal green left. What we really need to do is to have the coal power stations come back online, because that is the missing piece in the puzzle right now, King told the ABC. Finally, a better debate is being had about the realities of energy policy. Let's hope it is not too late. Now, it's not just the cost of living that will be high under the Greens. The last thing families battling high inflation want is their kids getting high on drugs. 
But the emboldened Greens, now with 12 senators and four members of the House of Representatives, uh, have said that their top priority is legalising marijuana. Go figure. They also want to ban new fossil fuel exploration in Bass Strait, a move that will also make it harder for families, increasing petrol and energy costs by constraining supply. Everything gets high under the Greens, and like all politician-induced highs, there's a hard landing. On legalising marijuana, the Times of London this week reported on what Australia can expect if the new Albanese government gives in to the Greens' demands. The mass legalisation of cannabis has led to a mental health time bomb in the United States, and scientists are warning that stronger strains are driving psychosis among young people. Do we want to go down that path? As British journalist and author Peter Hitchens points out, once marijuana is legalised, there is no going back. The Greens should read his excellent 2017 piece, Stupid Arguments for Drug Legalisation, Examined and Refuted, uh, that was published in the Sunday Mail. You can Google it. In it, he points out that the public good of enforcing tough-on-drugs laws and how it works in countries like Japan, with the result being less drug-induced lifelong psychosis. The growing toxic influence of the Greens has been a key motivator for the reformation of Family First, given the lack of strong counter-voices in our parliaments. With religious freedom under increasing pressure, faith leaders have stepped up their calls for the Albanese government to act. Five years on from the same-sex marriage debate, which created serious vulnerabilities for the freedoms uh, of those who hold the time-honoured beliefs about marriage, religious leaders don't want the issue to drag on. Federal government protections are needed in the face of increased hostility to religious and scientific views uh, on gender uh, that are being pushed by governments like that of Daniel Andrews in Victoria. Christian, Jewish and Muslim leaders spoke last week to the nine newspapers. Michael Stead, the Anglican Bishop of South Sydney, urged the Albanese government to help resolve concerns about the freedom of religious schools to uphold the ethos of the parent communities. And uh, he, he said this needed to happen by fast-tracking the long-promised review uh, of the Australian Law Reform Commission. Kaiser Trad, the Chief Executive of the Australian Federation of Islamic Councils, said, Before the election, the Prime Minister made very impassioned statements about protections for religion. And we certainly want him to move forward on that commitment. The government should not ignore the needs of faith communities who represent a majority of Australians, end quote. Now, New Attorney General Mark Dreyfus said Labor would legislate for religious freedom protections in this term, but he would not say when. The same-sex marriage campaign, which morphed into a standing political operation called Equality Australia, opposes restoring pre-same-sex marriage freedoms. Its CEO, Anna Brown, has successfully and falsely characterised religious schools as wanting to expel uh, gender-confused and same-sex attracted children. Now, this of course doesn't happen and no such power is sought by the religious school sector. However, the sector does want the freedom to protect girls' sport and private spaces from, uh, sorry, such as toilets and showers and change rooms from the intrusion of biological males identifying as girls. 
It is unclear how Labor, which supports taxpayer-funded experimental sex change operations for young people, will balance the competing rights of religious schools. LGBTIQA plus identity politics has weaponized state and federal anti-discrimination laws in ways few saw coming, leading to the establishment of a religious freedom movement in Australia. Family First supports freedom of religion and association, as well as the right of women and girls to fairness in sport and privacy in women's only spaces. Now, Family First is the only minor party contesting the by-election for the Adelaide seat of Bragg on July 2. Family First is the only party fielding a local not parachuted in from outside. I spoke with local high school teacher, Daryl McCann, during the week. Well, it's fantastic to have joining me from Adelaide, family first candidate for the Adelaide seat of Bragg, uh, the Bragg by-election coming up on a Saturday, July 2, not far away. Uh, Daryl's an excellent choice uh, for a candidate. He's got real life experience. He's a genuine local in his electorate and he'll tell us about the suburbs uh, that he is seeking to represent. But uh, Daryl is a uh, local Pembroke school teacher. Uh, he's a history teacher. Um, and unlike his opponent, his political opponent, um, he has real life experience. His opponent is a former staffer for Christopher Pine. Uh, viewers will remember Christopher Pine as a leading member of the uh, Turnbull government uh, and a long time parliamentarian, but someone who was very much on the left of the Liberal Party. And Daryl's opponent was also a staffer for George Brand, is also of the left the party uh, and was recently uh, living in Sydney moved back to to Bragg so hence uh, we're talking about Daryl's local credentials um, the by-election was caused by the resignation of the former deputy premier a liberal party uh, woman and attorney general uh, by the name of Vicky Chapman and uh, some Adelaide or South Australian uh, audience will recall that Chapman was a key driver of the abortion to birth and euthanasia legislation and she also championed the legalisation of brothels, something which women's groups uh, rightly say exacerbates the exploitation and harm of young women. So uh, certainly social conservatives and thinking mainstream Australians will be glad to see the back of Vicky Chapman. Daryl joins me da now. Daryl, thanks very much for your time this evening. Thanks for inviting me on the show live. Great. Well, um, tell us uh, a little bit about Vicky Chapman. Uh, I've mentioned some of her crusading on, on issues which are way out of step with mainstream Australia. Um, do you think there was much recognition in electorate that these are the things that she really fought for during her political career? Uh, these are the things that she fought for uh, most recently in the last term of office. Um, first of all, I've met Vicky. I mean, she's a nice person, but her, her ideology is, uh, you know, we call them the moderates in South Australia, but really they're very radical. And their hope is that they can win over the sort of faux middle by uh, being more politically correct, more trendy, more woke than uh, even some members of the Labour Party. Um, of course, it doesn't work because um, the fact is uh, if, if you're on the left, you're not going to vote for the Liberal Party, whatever happens. So you can be as politically correct and as woke as you like and it's not going to... Uh, win you over. You mentioned Malcolm Turnbull, perfect case in point, where many people on the left said he was the best liberal candidate uh, that could exist, and uh, yet uh, he was terrible electorally, and um, 
no one would vote for him on the left. So it's a, it's a fool's errand to to try and outflank the Labour Party and the Greens uh, by mm. being trendy in them. I think we can outflank them for sure. I think we're much more sensible and got, got uh, much better policies to help Australia and to help ordinary people. But by being more politically correct than the woke is probably not the way to do it. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the average person in Bragg probably, you know, isn't following a lot of these issues. Tell us about the electorate of Bragg. Um, and for those of us who are not familiar with with Adelaide, what suburbs does it encompass and um, what what are the demographics there? Well, it's a fantastic suburb. Uh, oh, a fantastic region, I should say, because it's got 27 suburbs in Bragg. Um, where very lucky to live. It's in the foothills and, and comes down towards the city. So um, we, we are in the foothills part of it, in Water Park, um, and it comes all the way down uh, to not too far from the city. It's got lovely uh, bushwalks. Um, the demographic is pretty good, pretty strong. Uh, people are you know, real achievers, a lot of energy. Um, a lot of the top private schools are in Bragg or near Bragg. A lot of the top state schools are in Bragg or near Bragg. Um, and I, I actually came here in 1998 to teach at Pembroke School. And I, di I didn't used to say what school I taught at until I ran in the last election. And then the advertiser, which is our local Murdoch tabloid, said I was at Pembroke School, so there's no point hiding it. And... You know, all the parents at Pembroke, which is a pretty good um, look at, um, at the whole seat, they're full of energy, they're very enthusiastic, they want their students to not just succeed, they want their students to engage um, with school, to, to learn. I'm a teacher of history, to, to even if they don't go on to be historians, obviously, but to love history, to know their history. And uh, it's just basically a fabulous place to live. And yeah. I, I think I'm the only one of the four who actually hasn't been helicoptered in here to uh, watch the election. Yeah, okay. No, well, that's interesting. I mentioned that um, your opponent, you know, former political staffer, uh, you know, has been parachuted in, so the other candidates as well. You're backing up um, from the March state election where you also, uh, you know, where you ran as a candidate and, and you did very well. Tell us about that result and uh, about the campaign in March and, and, and um, what it did to uh, help put Family First uh, back on the map. Well, as you know, that Family First is, um, I can use the expression, being reborn and come back to life, shall we say. And uh, um, it was around a long time ago, but it only came back as recently as July last year. Uh, so we had to move very fast. And, in fact, uh, it's now got people like you, um, and, you know, knowing about the party and connecting to the party nationally, uh, but originally... Last July, it was, it was very much uh, three people. Okay, so two were, believe it or not, two were former Labor ministers who were on the Labor right and were fed up with the Labor Party, um, who believed that the Labor Party wasn't even trying to get the Conservative vote uh, anymore. Mm. This is Now, this is your former Labor treasurer, Jack Snelling, and uh, Tom yeah. Kenyon, also another Labor minister, two very prominent members of a previous uh, Labor government. Very, very prominent. Um, and they uh, um, joined up with um, Deepa Matthew, who was a prominent liberal and a, um, conservative, but centre-right, and all, all of them. This is something I thought about for a long time as a writer. Um, there's all these people that 
that share a very similar sensible view about the way we should go forward um, and, and how we should educate our children and, and how we should look after our economy and how we should look, look after the environment and how we should treat each other as individuals rather than members of some identity group. And, and mm. they are right and, and they are in the Liberals. But, in fact, once you're in the Labour Party, um, you're as these two members anyway, you kind of, hijacked into going along with all sorts of things. So the idea of Family First is to be a real centre party with real principles, not faux centre. Um, so Nikki Chapman would be arguing she was kind of a groovy centre, a faux centre. Well, this is a real centre about real people from all demographics. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very attractive idea, but we didn't have much time to put things together. And I was asked if, if I could run in Bragg and try and get 3% of the vote uh, to help get someone into the Legislative Council, which is actually foiled in the end because, believe it or not, the um, I think it's the um, Legalised Marijuana Party preference one nation over family yeah. first in the, in the upper yeah. house. But in the lower house, we kicked along and got 1,200 votes. We got 5%. Five percent. Um, that's um that's an outstanding result for a minor party that's just been recently reborn. In fact, that's an outstanding result for a minor party uh, in any election. Well, I've never been in an election before, so it's kind of it's hard for me to judge how these things are. It's just I realised what a fabulous party it was. It really links to to a lot of things I've written about in Quadrant and Spectator, even for the ABC and the Australian, going back over time and. It, it, it's um, a very, very important party and that we've got 5%. So now we're going to see if we can kick on and um, see if we can uh, steal this election. What, what sort of impact did um, Family First, uh, in, in getting, you know, results like 5% in seats like Bragg at the March election, and, and, and I know, you know, we, we fell short, we came to an ultimate objective, which was to, try and get someone elected to the um, upper house. Tom Kenyon was our lead candidate uh, and, and he only just fell short. But uh, we were getting good results in seats like yours. What sort of a message did that send to both Labor and Liberal about uh, family-minded people and, and their values? Well, um, as, as we said through the election campaign, Labor uh, can't be bothered to try and get conservative votes in general and Liberals just took them for granted. So someone like Vicky Chapman, who in normal circumstances, I suppose I would have, uh, if I weren't running, if there wasn't a family first, I would have we'd go, oh, well, I suppose I should vote for um, the Liberals. This is what people are forced to do. And so family first is saying, no, um, you know, you can vote for um, an actual party that has actual beliefs, um, quite happy to discuss them, and we will be around for a long time. And people yeah. say, oh, what... A number of people, because I've been out handing out flyers, say, what about your preferences? Well, as far as I know, there's only four people standing. So you can give me your first preference, and it's up to you if you want to give your second preference yeah. or third. It's not all that complicated. That's no, and, and it's not a wasted vote. Um, the major parties try and say that having minor parties in the race is a wasted vote. It's not because of, what, of the point you were just making about the fact that you control your preferences. Well, um, yeah, the individual controls their preferences, uh, but... Um, and, and that is interesting is that you can do a protest vote. You, so make it really clear. You can vote for one, Darren McCann, and um, if you're really a keen Labor supporter or Liberal supporter, you can put two Liberal, two um, 
flavor and or you put two greens it's it's and you really make so it's very exciting and if we get a certain percentage um and preferences who knows what we could uh, yeah well, let's see, let's see what happens. Um, as you say, you're the only local standing in that seat, and uh, that's got to be a great attraction. Um, well, Carol, um, yeah, sorry, you go. Oh no, go I, ahead. You would think, I mean, this is the big machines, aren't they? They've got so much money. Um, we work so hard to put up uh, core flutes and to put flyers and to raise awareness, and um, they just have. Um, big machines coming in. They're really big machines. Yeah. So they've got a lot of money. Yeah. And they just kick out. I mean, the, the Labor guy, um, Rick Saar, who ran with, against, I ran against him last time, uh, you know, they just pushed him out of the way after years and years of, uh, you know, thinking they would go young, as you said. And Vicky Chapman, she, this cost, this election's costing three quarters of a million dollars because wow. Um, wow. she, it suited her to only stay one month. And, and leave. So I suppose there's another thing. I can promise that I will stay to the end of the four years. We have four-year term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good on you. Daryl, um, you're, a, you're a history teacher um, and uh, you, you mentioned that you write for Quadrant and I was going to raise that as well. I had a brief look on the Quadrant website and I can see that um, you're actually a very prolific writer for Quadrant. And for people who don't know, that's a, a very substantive journal on the conservative side of um of thought, leadership in this in this nation. So you're a serious intellectual. Um, I, I often struggle to read Quadrant articles. They're above my pay grade often. Um, but um, you, you've written a lot on different history. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're a spectator. So, so I think the, the advantage of the two no, qu is... Qu Quadrant as well. Um, yeah, I, I know you write for Spectrate, but you've, you've written prolifically for, for Quadrant and, and across geopolitics and history. What, what are the lessons that... We are, as a historian, that we are not learning from history in your view? Well, the biggest one is this. This new political correctness, this new wokeism, which I guess maybe 30, 40 years ago we treated as like a sort of a might have been a corrective, might have been a bit of a silly joke. We're now starting to realise that this is a departure from our Western civilization. If you look back through um, Western civilization, one and, and from the Christian Revolution of the fourth century, you see this emphasis on the individual, the sovereignty of the individual, the sacredness of the individual. And as Thomas Sowell said a long time ago, you, you can see people as a group, or you can see people as individuals. You can't have both. Now, some people might extrapolate from that that I'm saying some sort of Darwin, Darwinian, um, you know, dog-eat-dog -dog world. No, we, we are a sacred individual, and as a sacred individual, we have a conscience and a moral compass, and then we can absolutely get involved in community organisations, mm. good causes are key to all of us. It's family on the one hand, the nation-state on the other hand, and the West in a, in a wider sense, and you do that as an individual, you, you don't do it as a, a, a member of a group because one, one of the things I, it, it dawned on me once, one of the really important things is that we, we don't find our, um, you know, humanity through our identity. We find our identity through our humanity. And there's an awful lot of people that accuse conservatives and Christians and 
straight down the middle people as bigots. And but in many ways, they're the identity bigots. And, you know, most conservatives, most Christians I run into um, are really quite, uh, you know, humanism is very important. Christian humanism is very important. Yeah. Where you yeah. everybody. So this is, this is the thing we've lost. And, and it might... So, so you can see it, um, a, a thing I've thought about a lot, is you can see it in the, the Nazis and the way they would talk about Jewish people, as, as if a person was defined by their group. And here we are with our victim um, hierarchy um, ideology, we're falling into the same thing. I am a person, an individual, I treat other people as an individual, as a person first and foremost. And we judge them, not by, as Martin Luther King said, we judge them, not by the colour of the skin, not by their um, sexual identity, not by um, their ethnicity. We judge them by the content of the character. And we are losing that. We're throwing it away and uh, we're not allowing people that dignity. And, and yeah. you, you come, you were saying about the liberals, they have many ways they've adopted the same kind of um, group. Have, yeah. As if that win people over to them. No, that's right. Both sides of politics have um, bought into this wokeness, this identity politics uh, and this tribalisation into gender, eth uh, racial stereotypes and, and um, subgroupings and uh, it has been quite divisive. Um, Daryl, it's been great talking to you. Um, it, it would be fantastic to have someone who thinks clearly as you do, who understands what is at the cause of the breakdown of Western civilization, be great to have someone like you in our parliament. Um, how can people get involved with your campaign? So, people who are watching this in the Adelaide area, uh, what, what can they do to engage your campaign and help you in the last uh, couple of weeks before July two? Okay, so we've got the uh, flyers handled. Um, um, free polling we've got coming up, and the actual polling day. If people want to come along and give a couple of hours, if they contact the party, the party contacts me other things they can do is go on our facebook there's a facebook for the party and a facebook for me and um i've also got a sub stack and i'm daryl mccann online has been around for a while so you know come and read and engage and join uh and be part of something that it's very rewarding because you're not going to join a party that um says one thing and does another you've got you're going to yeah. be with people who actually are on the same page yeah, no, it's fant they're fantastic people. I've really enjoyed getting to know the Family First family over the last uh, few months that I've been engaged. So people can go to familyfirstparty.org.au and uh, click on the windows there. You'll see uh, a drop-down that says volunteer, and that'll take you straight through and put you in touch with Daryl's campaign in Adelaide. So familyfirstparty.org.au. Daryl, thanks so much for speaking with us, and uh, all the best for Saturday, July 2. Yeah, that, thank you very much, and it's really lovely chatting with you, Lyle. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for another week of the Macquarie Street Political Podcast. Don't forget to keep up with Family First political commentary by going to familyfirstparty.org.au. You can even sign up there for updates. Thanks to Dave and the team at The Good Source for editing and production of the Macquarie Street Political Podcast. Until next week, stay engaged with politics.